Welcome to the second segment of Lecture Notes for 8-2. Um, if you're listening to this and haven't heard part one, I really encourage you to do so. This is the second part in which we will talk exclusively about Eisenhower's foreign policy. And that's pretty much how the other lecture notes in the future will go. I'm going to divide into domestic and foreign policy. So you have the, the ability to choose uh, which one you'd like to listen to if you need more help. So right now we're going to turn to letter C and 8-2 notes under Eisenhower. It's titled Eisenhower and the Cold War. Here it goes. As I mentioned before, a lot of uh, criticism of Eisenhower was the fact that he wasn't really engaged in the foreign policy or domestic arena. And I told you that, you know, historians have challenged, long ch challenged that. But I cannot overlook the fact that he, at the same time, had a very powerful people in his cabinet that were really, really capable and uh, of making some big, big changes and strategy during the Cold War. So when you, I want you to think, when you're thinking Eisenhower in the Cold War, you should really think of two brothers. And I'm not talking about John F. Kennedy and Robert. I'm talking about John Foster Dulles and his brother Alan Foster Dulles, the Secretary of State and the, the Director of the CIA, respectively. For those of you who don't know about the Secretary of State, the position has been a long-standing one since the inception of our republic. The position implies to uh, the person holding it to be the chief diplomatic ambassador for other nations. So we have this historical legacy since John Quincy Adams to have the Secretary of State really kind of dictate the foreign policy, at, at, of course under the endorsement of a president. And the director of CIA, which again is relatively new because of the National Security Act that was passed under the Truman administration, which you know, justified and legitimized the, the creation of the CIA, will be a new, uh, new position opened up for which John's brother Allen will be residing in. Now, I have to make this very important that these are two positions that are in the executive branch, one of which is within the cabinet. It should be noted that although it's, these positions are going to be approved by the Senate and there's some sort of checks involved in that, both of these men are not democratically elected, right? I mean, Eisenhower, you can make the case, was. So all the positions and all the actions that he does, you could say in, in, in many respects at least 50 or 51% of the population agree with. What happens when you have an executive branch that becomes a little bit more bureaucratical and department-based, you begin to have people that are in charge of foreign policy that the public might not have the same level of scrutiny for. They might not have the same access to. And we're getting into an interesting phase in United States history where people, you know, like the Wizard of Oz, people behind the, the curtain, so to speak, are going to be the ones making a lot of big decisions. In some cases, that's good. In some cases, that's bad. We can connect this, obviously, with Dick Cheney, the vice president to George W. Bush in the early 2000s with respect to our entry into the Iraq War. And right, wrong, or indifferent, a lot of people are going to associate that blunder with Bush. But there are a lot of things going behind the face of the presidency that we should be more critical to as AP students. So let's dive a little bit deeper into these two men. The, the Dulles diplomacy really reevaluated our strategy. And before the Dulles brothers got into office, the main, the main strategy 
for the Truman years was containment uh, offered by uh, men like George Kennan and George C. Marshall, uh, people responsible for the Marshall Plan and, of course, the Truman Doctrine. And containment basically was contain communism. And, and some have accused Truman for being a hardliner, but these guys, these brothers, think it was too soft. The way they saw it was containment didn't go far enough to check Soviet expansion in Europe and Asia. Because if you think about it, even though containment successfully saved Greece and Turkey and, and, and you know, Western Berlin during the Berlin Airlift Crisis, it did nothing to stop Stalin's grip across the Eastern Bloc and the satellite states within them, like Hungary, right, Romania, Czech Republic, Poland, all these countries. Furthermore, it did really nothing to stop the rise of communism in China and the revolution in 1949. And then, of course, we have the Korean War, which ended in an armistice or truce. So these brothers are going to suggest that the U.S. takes more of a hard-line approach against communists through more aggressive tactics. They're going to say, we should put more rhetoric in liberating captive nations. I mean, they're going to try to actively encourage nationalist partisan groups um, such as in the government of Taiwan, to fight and reclaim communist China. And, and here's, here's the thinking before some of my students that are, are, are flinching, and I don't have to remind you that we no longer have a monopoly on nuclear war uh, arms. So a good question to ask is, well, is it really risky? Is it worth it being so aggressive? And this is their theory. By pushing communist powers to the brink of war, the Kremlin, that's the capital of the Soviet Union at the time, that's what we called it, that's the equivalent of how we would call Washington, D.C., Washington, and Beijing in China, would yield to the U.S. power due to its nuclear su superiority. And this hard line became known as brinkmanship. In other words, you know, even though the Soviets were able to get some atomic weaponry, we, we outnumber them. And, you know, if we push the Reds in both Russia and China... To the brink of war, that's where the word brinkmanship comes, they'll back down. It's a it's like a it's like a game of poker. But the problem and the, and then the whole point of it is the, the the implication of disaster, the implication of a response if they don't bow down to nuclear uh, the supremacy of the United States. But like poker, people are capable of bluffing. So what would happen if for example, Soviet Union called our bluff. We would have to be in the uncomfortable position of choosing between, you know, going along the lines of our warning, dropping a bomb, and who knows what would happen after that. Or, you know, going against our word, which loses our credibility anyway. So you can understand that there's some obvious benefits to this. The appearance of strength might be able to, you know, keep these communist nations in line. But what happens if they call us out? So because of this, this is going to be, you know, one of the key elements or reasons for the proliferation of the nuclear arms race. You know, if the Soviets know that we're issuing brinkmanship, we're bringing them to the, you know, the brink of war, they're not going to back down. In fact, they're going to, you know, expand their nuclear uh, development programs, not take it away, despite some of the signs of both nations during the UN era, right, 1946, 1947, of trying to take back or kind of put away some of these arms. So now we're having we're having an arms race. We're, we're, we're at least getting to the point where an arms race is going to be certain. 
massive retaliation. Dulles is also going to advocate spending more on nuclear weapons and air power and less on conventional forces of an army-navy to kind of support his brinkmanship. And the theory would be to save money, because remember, Eisenhower and these guys are fiscal conservatives, but at the same time, they don't want to jeopardize the security of our nation. They can balance the federal budget by doing that, and of course, increase pressure on potential enemies. Of course, this is going to be really, really, really heavily endorsed by many Republicans who are going to support this. But at the same time, they're going to feed in to a very same industry that Eisenhower is going to warn against when he leaves. The military-industrial complex. These, these, you know, these contracts that the government will issue to some of these manufacturers that will make you know, the missiles and you know, the, the chemicals that are going to be used for the propulsion of rockets, right? The, the air power, you know, a lot of airplanes that are going to be made during this time. Well, the people that are going to be manufacturing laws, they're going to get, make a lot of money. And I don't have to tell you, you know, or remind you of the potential for trouble if we put a lot of profit or motivation behind an entire industry for making weapons. When there's a financial incentive... People in these key industries, especially in our, you know, republic, when we allow lobbying, they might be able to pressure senators or other congressmen, you know, to support war, if and when the time comes. So we're going to see that. We're going to see a lot of protesting going on about the military-industrial complex by the 1960s in the Vietnam War. But the idea of brinkmanship and mass retaliation is based on what will later be known as mutually assured destruction. And it goes like this. Even if the Soviets and the Chinese build weapons, the Chinese don't have weapons yet, but even if the Russians have atomic weapons, and even if, you know, they bomb us, well, we can wipe them off the map as well. And the idea is that if we both have the ability to mutually destroy each other, Ironically, it will create for a more stable world arena because these both of these countries are going to look for alternatives to check each other's political influence. In other words, you know, if, if I have a big bat and you have a big bat and we are both capable of destroying each other, perhaps we will find indirect means of undermining our credibility and world standing in the world community. And this is what's going to lead to a lot of proxy wars. So ironically, brinkmanship in, to an incense works it creates this, you know, stability, even though a lot of the Americans are terrified at the prospect of the Russians getting the bomb. But we have to understand that they're humans too, right? I'm sure, you know, people in the Kremlin and the people, no, no, the prime minister, the, the Russian leader right now, Khrushchev, Nikita Khrushchev, that took over after Stalin's death in 53, we can make the assumption that these people are just as scared, right? Their news outlets are probably talking about the impending bombing of American uh, Ameri you know, American attacks on, on in their cities. So, you know, we like to think that there's just a scare on our end, but the Russians are equally as really nervous. But again, we're going to move away from blowing each up to making more of a chess game. And I'm not saying that's a good thing or a bad thing. I'm just telling you, it make, gets, get, makes things more complicated. It will justify our entry into several regions uh, throughout the world, such as Southeast Asia, the Middle East, and Africa. And to connect it to today's time, you know, all the problems that we have with terrorism and all these groups that hate the West or, you know, America and what we stand for, you know, could really be boiled down to Cold War politics. 
Because when we want to check Soviet aggression, right, or expansion or influence, we're not going to look at these these regions as sovereign nations worthy of self-determination, the principles that were, you know, uh, expressed by Wilson and even Roosevelt. We're going to look at them as pawns. We're going to be, you know, trying to influence anyone who's anti-communist. And the problem with that is, you know, sometimes people that are anti-communist, especially factions within these third world countries, are not good people. They just hate communists. Or, you know, and they're going to support more totalitarian or fascist, you know, uh, forms of government. Because remember, democracy, for as much as we love it, you have to admit that if you are leading, reading Lord of the Flies right now, it offers a chance for chaos. It offers a chance for demagogues, demagoguery, people that rise to power and take advantage. And you understand how easily corruptible or persuaded the masses can be. That's what the Founding Fathers were afraid of, right? So if you don't have the ability to grow democracy without being interrupted by larger, you know, foreign intervention, you're not going to have, you know, democracy be played out the way we had it. You know, we had uninterrupted democracy as a result of our geography. It's not going to be the same in Iran or Guatemala or Nicaragua or Vietnam. And because of that, our intervention and our promotion of some people who are just anti-communists, we rather would like stability than democracy. And that's going to lead to resentment. You know, I have to point out people like Ho Chi Minh, that's going to be the nationalist communist leader of Vietnam, uh, was inspired by the Declaration of Independence. You know, a lot of these leaders initially, you know, hated uh, Britain for their imperialistic grip on the world arena. We begin to replace, you know, Britain as the world leader. We're also going to inherit their hatred from other third world countries. So this has definite connection to the 21st century today. And of course, a lot to the instability of these regions we'll talk more about. C, the unrest in the third world. As I said before, you know, Britain, or at least Winston Churchill, begrudgingly acknowledged that at some point after the war to Roosevelt that he will start to decolonize, right? The Atlantic Charter outlined post-war plans after World War II of giving colonies that Britain had some ability for self-determination, okay? And many, many countries like Britain no longer can afford to hold them. And, you know, begrudgingly, you know, adhering to their promises to the Americans, they start to slowly, you know, uh give up the yoke of their imperialistic strongholds. And that's that's good, right? In many ways, you know, these people, you know, like my father, for instance, and he's got his, he's a, he's Cypriot, you know, he's a country, right, underneath Turkey. It's an independent country. It's not Greek, by the way. It's an opportunity to be independent, you know, and this kind of goes in the, the legacy of the United States. But it also is an opportunity, right, for these people to experiment with socialism, if need be. So you can understand where we start to get a little nervous. Between 1947 and 1962, all these colonies in Asia and Africa are going to gain their independence from a lot of their former colonial powers, most notably, you know, England and France. For England, it's India, you know, and South Africa, which would take a little while. And then for France, it'll be like places like Morocco and Algeria and Vietnam. The Dutch, of course, are not going to be free from this as well. We have the idea of, you know, Indonesia being free. 
So just look at your notes from 1947. We got India and Pakistan, which at this point is one nation. We're going to talk about, you know, if you looked at, remember world history, they had a, you know, divided because of ethnic and religious differences. And Indonesia today is still um, one of the largest, it is the largest Muslim, uh, you know, areas in the world. And still kind of rife with, you know, social social turmoil. And Ghana, of course, we know from Ghana and Mali from, you know, the uh, Ebola outbreak. So, again, I'm not blaming these Western countries, but, you know, years of colonial oppression. Who's in charge? Well, these, these, these European leaders, right? You know, the schools would be reserved for, you know, European leaders' children. You know, this could be segregation of, you know, facilities, much like in America. And when they leave, you know, the people that are indigenous to these areas don't have the political experience. It's not that they're stupid. I want you to make that very clear. We have a tendency to think, well, they can't run themselves, right? There's, a, there's an assumption that they're inferior. But would, would Jefferson and Hamilton, would Washington or Adams or any of these founding fathers lead or be able to lead a country if it was interrupted by foreign influence, if we were being patronized by stronger forces and we were not able to, you know, fight against the yoke of imperialism, right? Would we be able to have a strong, robust, democratic republic that we have today? Probably not. I mean, think about this. Even the Civil War, who was trying to, you know, gauge who was going to win? England was looking for an angle, you know, to, to, to support the Confederates. And we see this with the Trenton Affair, Right? So we have to give some sort of reverence to the fact that these countries are trying their best to practice democracy, but they don't have the time and the isolation required to grow that plant. I want you to imagine it as a plant, you know, and there are going to be, you know, there's going to be a brief interim, a reverie between colonialism and the Cold War. Now replacing Britain and France will be the United States or the Soviet Union. Covert action. It's going to be a big problem. You know, as I mentioned before, the Dulles brothers are going to want to, you know, um, refocus their efforts on checking Soviet expansion through mass retaliation. That's going, to, that's going to filter into covert action. Why? Well, these missions are going to be less expensive. You know, spies don't cost as much as soldiers. You need one man to pay off media outlets in any given region to overthrow a government that you don't like. And of course, missions would be less publicly objectionable purely because they were conducted in secrecy in the first place. So you have a lot of, you know, missions that you can, you know, green light without any scrutiny by the public. I want you to start thinking about whether or not that's a good or bad thing. And if you're like me, if you believe that the government is for the consent of the people, right, the people are in charge, there should be some degree of, you know, transparency. But at the same time, I understand by giving this amount of transparency, you're jeopardizing, you know, key information uh, that might, you know, that might be dangerous or jeopardize the mission that you want to do. So I can understand this, 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 this dilemma, you know. For example, in 1953, the CIA will help overthrow the government in Iran. Um, there's a, gov a government that will democratically elect Iran. I'm going to repeat that. There's, there's a democracy. They were trying it out. And they elected a man named Mohammed Mossadegh, who's going to nationalize oil 
from the holding of foreign oil companies. Now, when I say nationalized, I mean the government's going to take over. But it sounds socialistic, right? But you can imagine if all our oil wells in Texas were owned by Chinese companies. Wouldn't it be popular with someone like Trump or Obama? Say, get out. This should be American, right? State-run. It's very popular. Regardless of how popular it is, it's going to be viewed with heavy suspicion by the United States eventually under the heavy persuasion of the English who still have oil holdings there. You have to understand that if they own, you know, big parts of the property in Iran, it stands to go against their interest if this man Mossadegh nationalizes it. So eventually the British intelligence operatives convince Americans that this is in their key, their best interests. Mossadegh is a communist. So, CIA, run by Teddy Roosevelt's grandson, Kermit Roosevelt, of all people, will help orchestrate a smear campaign against Mossadegh by using the Iranian media outlets. They're going to help uh, bribe, essentially, military officials, kind of jealous of Mossadegh's power, take advantage of, like, you know, internal power squabbles to oust him. And then we're going to put up a person known as the Shah. It's the word for monarch in that area. And again, here's the irony here. We're a country that promotes democracy, yet we don't want it. Because I said before earlier, democracy, right, is a chaotic element to that, especially for countries that are just trying it out. So we're more comfortable putting in a monarch, a stable, reliable force, especially that is anti-communist, than letting them have a go at it. And the reason why we talk about 1953, you should note this, it makes a lot of sense that the Iranians will build such a level of resentment for this intervention that in 1979, they're going to launch a revolution known as the Iranian Revolution. But unlike our revolution, that was fairly moderate and came, you know, came up with a you know, wonderful democratic republic, they're going to support a political system that is not associated with the West. Because remember, they're looking at Western ideology. Democracy is a sham. They tried it, and bigger powers got involved. So they're going to embrace uh, the radical sect of Islam, or one of the branches, a ra radical sect of Shiite Islam, under the leadership of a, cler a cleric named the Ayatollah Khomeini. And he will establish pretty much a theocracy in Iran that we see today. So we can understand why now Iran you know, calls you know, the United States the great Satan because of our involvement there during Cold War. There's also going to be several assassination attempts made on Fidel Castro, who's going to be the leader of the, co uh, the Communist Party in Cuba in the 1950s. That's not going to, you know, be ignored by him. He knows that the United States has something to gain to his ouster, which is interesting because prior to his involvement, in the government, we kind of, you know, we were kind of neutral on the the current governor or leader of Cuba, Batista. He was kind of a you know dictator, corrupt, you know, in bed with some of these crony business leaders that are American and Cuban, you know, at the expense of the poor, which justifies the rise of Fidel Castro. Which you know, depending on who you you talk to, was democratically or popularly supported. So every time the CIA attempts to assassinate him, various ways, by the way, they come up with very clever ways, you know, one in which was, you know, to pay off the mafia to do it, because there's a lot of holdings and casino dealings uh, the mafia had in Cuba, because it was unregulated. 
There was others of poisoning his cigars and, you know. Then we moved on to other things like, you know, maybe we don't have to kill him. Maybe we just have to get rid of his charisma, you know. Has some sort of chemical that can, you know, get rid of his beard. Because a lot of a lot of people in the CIA really thought that the power lied in the beard. Which, as a beard holder myself, I could see some truth to that. But you can see, again, the more we begin to meddle in the affairs of others, you know, starts to build resentment elsewhere. And for those of you who say, so what? Well, we can't piss off everybody in the world. It stands to show that coalition, especially against our true rivals, stands to hold some good heavy water. We need to make sure that we do that. And are we not trying to check Soviet expansion? By annoying these third world countries, we're not doing well enough to kind of acknowledge the position that they're in, treating them as pawns. We're not doing ourselves a favor in terms of security interests. I can't, you know, I can't like overstate that this will have some sort of connection to the Bay of Pigs invasion. And of course, the Cuban Missile Crisis, which we'll talk about later. Asia. As I mentioned before, Korea, we established an armistice in the Korean War by March 1953, right? It's a little mixture of diplomacy, the threat of nuclear war, not just MacArthur's calling for, you know, dropping bombs, but other people as well. And of course, the death of Stalin, you know, the idea that this leader is right, wrong, or indifferent dies. It causes a little bit of confusion in the diplomatic channels of China as well as Korea. So... Korea and China will agree to an assignment to end the war in exchange for war prisoners. And then we're going to have what we have today, right? North Korea and South Korea along the 38th parallel. However, most of these troops will be withdrawn, but not all. And we still have a military presence in South Korea today. You can understand, if you're a communist, or the Chinese at least, you're a little upset by this. Because nothing... You know, challenges your sovereignty or your, you know, sphere of influence, your hemisphere, like a military presence of a Western country. Remember, the Chinese, like the Soviets, are highly suspicious of Western infiltration, as evidenced by the 1890s. Remember, the open door policy, the spheres of influence people have been, you know, abusing and plundering upon Chinese resources for decades. It'd be like if Russia continued to stay in our hemisphere as we see in the Cuban Missile Crisis, right? They may have not explicitly said anything, you know, as, as strong as the Monroe Doctrine, but if they had something similar to that, I could imagine why. They would, they would view, you know, America bases as a threat. We also have bases in Japan and the Philippines. So you can understand there's tension that's going to be um, happening as a result of, the, of this. Right, wrong, or indifferent, you have to see it from their point of view. Perhaps what will be the most, you know, tense uh, conflict will be the fall of Indochina, right? It's already established that the Chinese will be communist. Japan is already going to be westernized. South Korea is already done as a, you know, saved as a result of containment under the Truman administration. But when Japan acquires the French colony of Indochina during World War II, the French will desperately try to retake control of it, you know, of the region after the war, right? So the question of Indochina was kind of in question since World War II. But once the, milita the French military kind of try to reassert their presence, you know, the Vietnamese are kind of sick and tired of it, much like people in India and Pakistan and South Africa and Cuba. They're sick of, you know, an imperialistic stronghold 
or foreign intervention. So it's going to call for more nationalist and communist leaders like, you know, as I said before, Ho Chi Minh. Our position, as always, we would rather want stability than democracy, the chaotic elements that come from democracy. So in 1950, we're going to send aid to the French forces to keep the colony. And USSR and, of course, China have such a strategic interest to aid Ho Chi Minh and the rebel forces. Remember, chaos is good for them, at least. Socialism is still quite an attractive ideology, despite the poor application of both of those countries to it. Right? In 1954, the French forces will surrender to the leader of Den Bien Phu, to Ho Chi Minh's forces, right? The French will ask Eisenhower to interview, but he refuses, which is very interesting. Some historians have contended that the fact that he did not intervene when he did just only kind of pushed the conflict further in the 1960s under Kennedy. Some applaud him for his efforts for not getting involved, right? In either case, by 1954, the Geneva Conference, France will give up the region, which was divided into independent nations of Cambodia, Laos, and Vietnam. And again, each of these nations are going to be relatively new, and they're going to want to try out different political systems. You can understand why we're going to intervene when those systems are not going to be, you know, democratic, or at least anti-communist. The division of Vietnam will further ensure, you know, our influence in the region. The terms of the Geneva Conference will divide the nation along the 17th parallel, very similar to Korea. Two hostile governments will seize the opportunity to take power on their side of the line. In the north, you have the Ho Chi Minh, which will establish a communist dictatorship. It must be noted, you know, at the beginning, he wasn't like that. He turned into a dictator when he realized the, you know, the issues of running a country that's not historically, you know, used to uh, self-rule. And then South Vietnam, run by Nguyen Dinh Diem. I'm probably, I'm really probably butchering that. It was supported by the Catholic urban Vietnamese elite. It was very important you should know that because Catholic is a Christian religion and Christianity is a Western idea, right? And again, he's, you know, if he supports the rich elite and he's a believer or at least a supporter of Western religion, you can understand how this is going to annoy or at least be heavy suspect to the people. And it's interestingly enough, the general election to the unit of Vietnam, the entire Vietnam, was never held because the South Vietnamese feared communists would win. So the Southern Vietnamese people, under uh, Diem, he's going to refuse to have democracy because he doesn't want to, again, open the possibility of a communist being in power, democratically elected. Between 1955 and 1961, the United States will give more than $1 billion in economic and military aid to the South Vietnamese in an effort to build a stable anti-communist state. We're going to call this kind of like a buffer state, right? And Eisenhower will use the domino theory as justification for this aid. And the, the theory goes as if one nation becomes under communist rule, and you know, inevitably the surrounding countries will as well. So this is, this is going to further agitate um, you know, the, the region in Asia. The Chinese are not going to appreciate that. Russians are not going to appreciate that. But we're doing it under the policy of, like, you know, being a little bit more aggressive uh, than Truman was in terms of containment. And it's, it's really hard to make that, you know, that, that claim, but one wonders what would happen if, you know, the policy of containment happened. Would Truman do the same thing? And again, I leave that to you to, to decide. And again, much like NATO, permanent wartime alliance, CEDO will basically be the equivalent in, the, in Asia. It's known for, you know, Southeast Asia Treaty Organization. It'll be a defense pact. 
to ensure that you know the countries of Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia are not going to be under communist infiltration. I don't have to tell you that this pact that will be signed in 1954 will you know stabilize the region, but at the same time lead to tensions. Right? It'd be like if the Russians made a pact with South American countries. You know, they called it you know South American you know, treaty organization, SATO. You can see why some people would be upset about that. The Middle East. It's very interesting because you would like to think at this time that people in the Middle East hate us, but quite the opposite, really. A lot of the Arabs, much like the people in Asia and Africa, are really inspired by you know the ideals of self-determination espoused by Wilson and Roosevelt. So we have to kind of have a diplomatic tightrope. Remember, we don't we, we this is a PR war. The Cold War. We want to maintain friendly ties with oil-rich Arab states, and we also want to support the Jewish state of Israel. The reason why we want to support the Jewish state of Israel is because it's a nice buffer state, much like you know how South Vietnam is in Asia. Israel will serve as a nice buffer state for us. You know, then they're they're very similar in terms of culture, although they're not you know Christian, come from the same Judaic Christian tradition. We will help support in 1948 the nation of Israel under the auspices or the control of the UN. After the civil war and the British mandate territory of Palestine will be left divided between the Israeli and Palestinians. See, this is really the mess of the British. The British since World War One, in their famous Balfour Declaration, promised the Palestinians a home state. To which by nineteen forty eight they did not get it. You know, they got, you know, they're there, but they never got de jure recognition. You can understand why some Palestinians are upset with that. But the reason that you know the United States is involved in the Middle East is again oil interests. We don't we can't afford that the Soviets will have such a good diplomatic connection to these Arab oil rich states because, you know, oils run ships, oils, you know, oils fuel industrial, you know, societies. So we're gonna have a very strong, you know, influence in this region. And one of the things and examples that we can highlight or underscore our involvement is in the Suez crisis, when Arab nationalist general, you know, Jamal Nasser of Egypt asks for the U.S. to help find the construction, the fund, the construction of the Aswan Dam project in the Nile River. You know, the U.S. initially refuses to to help because they don't want to kind of, you know, jeopardize Israel's security because you know Egypt and Israel border, you know. Because of this, Nasser, you know, very aware of the, you know, the political context, the broader political context, goes to the Soviet Union for help. The Russians, of course, will agree to provide limited funding for the project. You know, this is a perfect way to check United States power for Israel. 1956, Nasser, you know, will escalate tension by seizing and nationalizing the British and French-owned Suez Canal that passed through the Egyptian territory. You have to understand that this loss of canal will threaten Western access to the Middle Eastern oil, and particularly um, for the British, who you know historically used this um, not only to gain access to the Middle East, but also to you know ship goods to their crown jewel in India. Eisenhower will be infuriated about not being you know alert to the attack. You know the the, the British, French, and Israel forces will launch a surprise attack to take the canal, and Eisenhower will be infuriated for not being alerted to this. Interestingly enough, you would think we would support our historically Western allies, the Britain French, and our new buffer state Israel, but we don't. We condemn the invasion of Egypt. And under international scrutiny and pressure, 
these forces will be forced to withdraw. The reason being is that, you know, on one hand, we of course want to check Soviet expansion. On one hand, we want to support our Western uh, allies. But you have to understand how Western allies are being viewed, especially the French and British during this time, right? They're they're viewed as imperialistic oppressors by some of these countries. So if you want to win the PR war, you have to be a little bit of a diplomat. Choose your battles. And for this, you could see the dicey move that Eisenhower makes. One has to wonder if he's, you know, responding out of spite or he's doing this out of calculation. I leave you to decide. But either way, regardless of what happened in the Suez Crisis, Eisenhower will take the opportunity to replace Britain and France as the leading Western influence in the Middle East. And this, you know, overarching policy will be known as the Eisenhower Doctrine, which is basically an extension of the Truman Doctrine, right? And instead of, you know, aiding Greece and Turkey to, you know, to, you know, destabilized regions to prevent them from, you know, flirting with socialism. It's the same thing with, you know, the Middle East. Provide any economic military aid. And again, initially it's going to be viewed well, but with a series of proxy wars and the paradox of allowing democracy in these regions, especially in Iran, we're going to start to see that's going to lead to a lot of resentment in this region. Another force that we'll be reckoned with is this idea of OPEC. In 1960, the best way I can you know, describe OPEC, it's a league of nations, right? It's, a, it's, a, it's like a, you know, it's a group, it's a clique of nations of Saudi Arabia, Iraq, Iran, Kuwait, and Venezuela. The only one that's not part of the Middle East is Venezuela. It's also uh, one of the largest oil exporting countries to date. They're going to form an organization of the petroleum exporting countries. Oil will be shaping up to be a critical foreign policy issue, right? We depend on oil. However, the Arabs understand that, and they're going to use that as political leverage. Right? Not only that, OPEC, largely made up of Arabs, are going to be united by you know, a sense of ethnicity, which we call Arab nationalism. And they're going to be able to kind of use this to kind of leverage the position on Israeli and Palestinians, because the Palestinians, of course, are Arab. They're, you know, you know, most of them, not all, because Arab is an ethnicity. Islam is a religion, so there are going to be some Arab um, Muslims there. And, you know, depending on our level of support for Israel, they might respond by, you know, jacking up oil prices. And as you know, if gas prices go up, the average American is not going to be like, oh, that was OPEC, right? That's, that's just because of foreign policy issues. Most people during this time are going to blame their current president. As I mentioned before, you know, it doesn't matter if it's a good economy or a bad economy. It doesn't matter if the presidents have very little to do with the economy. They'll be blamed for it, and that could cost a political election. So there's going to be a connection between what happens abroad and domestic policies abroad, uh, in, our house, in our home. U.S.-Soviet relations. During this time, it will be fluctuated between high levels of intensity and periods of relative peace. Because of mutually assured destruction, we have this, you know, the sense that we can blow each other up at any minute, but at the same time, we're stabilized, right? Especially, it's going to be relative peace after Stalin's death. It's going to call for a slowdown in the arms race. We're dealing with a different person now, right? We're not dealing with a megalomaniac. So he's going to present the United Nations as an Adams for Peace plan. The Soviets under Nikita Khrushchev will agree to reduce Cold War tensions because they see that also as a strategic um, you know, benefit to them. They're going to withdraw 
troops in Austria, which will be a previously agreed to be a neutral zone after the war. So they do, as, as, as a good sign, right? And we'll be establishing peaceful relations with Greece and Turkey. In other words, we're going to kind of tighten our grip a little bit on that. Another Geneva, we're going to have another summit in Geneva called the Spirit of Geneva, which is in Switzerland, 1955. Eisenhower will propose an open skies policy over either territory, um, allowing aerial photography and reconnaissance in order to eliminate the chance of a surprise nuclear attack. In other words, it's kind of like the you know the free the free seas or the open you know open trade a little bit. You know, let me look into your backyard. You can look at mine, so we can like avoid the chance of um, you know, surprise attack. If I know I could see the the silos that you develop, the missile silos, I I'm a little bit like I have a you know I have a, I have a heads up. Soviet Union will reject the plan, but 1956 Soviet leader again Khrushchev will denounce the crimes of Joseph Stalin, and they will support peaceful coexistence with the West. So you know we have this 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 pivot from you know the cold, calculated yet paranoid uh, moves of Stalin. To more of the, you know, pragmatic Nikita Khrushchev. Again, he's not a he's not a peaceful love dove, right? He's not a hippie. He's not here to extend a hand out to the United States, but he he's not a Stalin. All of these elements of peace are going to be really called into question during the Hungarian Revolt, when people behind the Iron Curtain start to push for democratic reform in East Germany and Poland. In particular, in 1956, a group of Hungarians will succeed in overthrowing the communist leaders and push to defect from the Warsaw Pact, expecting some sort of U.S. help or support. Khrushchev will respond by sending Soviet tanks to squash the rebellion. Because after all, not a Stalin, but he understands the legitimacy the, of, the, of the satellite states, right? The buffer zone. He's no love of, of the West. He knows what will happen if democracy comes to the Iron Curtain or behind it. What's interesting, the United States does not intervene because Eisenhower feared it might escalate into another war. However, by doing nothing, it gave de facto recognition, not official, but by doing nothing, it showed a message, an implicit message to the people behind the Iron Curtain that the Soviets were the supreme rulers behind there, right? So, like, there's no reason, right, for East Germany, for instance, or Poland to stage a rebellion, especially if they're not going to get, you know, support for, you know, the aerial aerial power of the United States. And also, a lot of the Soviets are going to, you know, be very suspect of how and why exactly the Hungarians were able to do that. And they're going to kind of, like, think maybe perhaps the CIA had something to do with it. Again, it's hard to tell because these are all covert admissions. But it's enough to kind of, you know, elate suspicion. What will also really upset the Americans is the Sputnik shock in 1957. The USSR will shock the West when they launch their first satellite, Sputnik 1 and 2, into orbit. Remember, we were ones that we wanted to be the hegemony of the powerhouse. And the fact that they're able to send something in outer space to overwatch the entire planet really calls to question our way of you know investing in science and technology. To really add to embarrassment, we have attempts to duplicate this Soviet achievement, and it's going to fail miserably because we have a, you know, some government officials are going to accuse the school systems of not supplying adequate math and science programs. And we could see this, you know, today, you know, when a ch American children fail international PISA scores, these are assessments, you know, that all countries will most participate in, we are usually scored pretty low, and who's to blame, right? 
teachers. And we have to compete with China. We have to compete with our rivals. And how are we going to do that? So there's going to be an emphasis on science, math, and engineering at the expense of art and the humanities, which I think, and it's just a, you know, I'm biased. It's problematic because if you don't have humanities, you don't understand history. You can make all the science technology you want, but you might make something, you know, tools that will blow each other up even more so. Another, and it doesn't matter. 1958, in response to this crisis, Congress will pass the National Defense and Education Act, which authorizes giving hundreds of millions in federal money to the schools of math and science and foreign language education. I'll keep this in mind for my constitutionalists out there. We're beginning to see the proliferation of fed, federal monies to states. And although it's not an explicit violation of the Constitution, we know that state governments are the ones who are supposed to be running education. So keep that in mind. But when it comes with national security interests, those principles often go awry. Also, we're going to create the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, or NASA, as you know, to help compete with the Russians in the space race. So now it's not just about, you know, the arms race, it's about the space race. This is why I call it a PR war. There's a lot more to stand and gain with the symbolism of this. Perhaps what really kind of almost escalated us into another war. It was the second Berlin crisis. We had the first one with Truman and this one under Eisenhower. You know, confident by the Sputnik and the crushing of the Hungarian revolt, Khrushchev boasted that we will, quote, bury capitalism and, you know, tested U.S. supremacy in Western Berlin. Gave them an ultimate, an ultimatum, a choice. You have six months to withdraw out of the city before turning it to the East Germans or else. You know, Russia is like a cat. They're trying to test how a cat paws and it's prey. It's not going to pounce right away. They're going to test to see what will the response be. U.S. refuses to yield. Eisenhower invites Khrushchev to visit the U.S. in 1959 to discuss the solution, which is good because, again, it shows firmness, but at the same time shows a diplomatic hand. And at the presidential retreat at Camp David, the two leaders will agree to put off the crisis and schedule another summit conference in Paris for 1960, which is interesting because by 1960, you have John F. Kennedy become president. And the way Nikita Khrushchev looks at Kennedy is not the same way as Eisenhower. Eisenhower, you know, is a big, strong general from World War II, will inspire at least some sort of strength and confidence, right, and respect, you know, even, you know, albeit begrudging respect from Nikita Khrushchev. But John F. Kennedy... In Khrushchev's eyes, who grew up as a peasant in the Soviet Union and worked his way up. John F. Kennedy, he was part of the Massachusetts elite. It's going to look like a rich, spoiled young boy. And we're going to see how he changes the political calculus when Kennedy comes into power, as we learn about that in the next lecture. Of course, the spirit of Camp David, as it as it was known, never had a chance to produce results because two weeks after planning the meeting in Paris, the Russians will be shot down. The Russians will shoot down a high altitude U.S. spy plane called the U-2 over the Soviet Union. And it's really awkward for us because the incident will expose a secret U.S. tactic of acquiring information after the Russians explicitly did not agree with the open skies policy that he, you know, suggested a couple of years ago. Eisenhower will only admit responsibility after. They were exposed by the U-2 incident. So he's going to, you know, Nikita Khrushchev is going to accuse the United States for espionage. We'll deny it. And then awkwardly, they will show the prisoner. Well, how did we get this guy? And again, it's a PR battle. It's going to undermine U.S. credibility, and we're going to come across as sneaky. It's also going to, you know, legitimize the paranoia 
shared by Stalin and Khrushchev, that the West is constantly trying to infiltrate their sphere of influence. So it only justifies the Iron Curtain even more. Khrushchev will be angered and walk out of the Paris summit as a response. Tensions will resume between the two world powers. Khrushchev's not going to forget about that. He's not going to forget about the problem with you two. And he's going to see what he can do in the other parts of the world. The chess game, right? The chess pieces are all over the place. And he's going to try to see what he can do with Cuba. But before his influence in Cuba, there's going to be a lot of internal strife within that, that country to begin with, right? In 1959, Fidel Castro and the communists will overthrow a Cuban dictator named Fulgencio Batista. And again, I told you, he was kind of corrupt and in bed with a lot of crony businessmen, American and Cuban alike. And Castro, like Mossadegh in Iran, will try to nationalize all the American-owned businesses and properties in Cuba. Take, basically confiscate all these businesses. Castro will also turn to the Soviets for support. Here's the problem. Communism is now in America's backyard, 90 miles from the coast of Florida, to be exact. It's not an option. It's going to violate the long-standing, you know, policy of the good neighbor policy by Roosevelt, or you want to go further back, the Rooseveltary corollary by Teddy Roosevelt, his cousin, or even further back, you know, Monroe Doctrine, ghost written by John Quincy Adams. So we have a, we have a historical, that's why we have to learn about these terms, because this really, you know, raises a lot of anxiety for people in the foreign policy arena, because we have a legacy of protecting our neighborhood. Eisenhower will plan a secret CIA operation, like he did again in Iran, to train anti-communist Cuban exiles to retake the island. Unfortunately, this plan will be initiated under Kennedy's reign, and he will be known for the president to initiate this plan, the Bay of Pigs invasion, which will be a disaster, even though it wasn't his plan. He said okay to it, and we'll talk more about why he did, why he okayed it, something that he really didn't plan. We'll talk about that later. So what is Eisenhower's legacy? Well, I leave this to you to decide, but I want you to kind of leave with this in mind. He will be claimed credit for checking communist aggression and keeping peace without utilizing the military okay he's going to he did try to start you know a process of relaxing tensions with the soviet union right however we can't you know ignore the fact that some of the critics will argue that he helped create them in the first place right so he invited you know khrushchev to the camp david to talk about the you know the berlin crisis but he did nothing to kind of alleviate the tensions by you know starting the u2 incident in 1958, he's going to in initiate the first arms limitation by voluntarily suspending above-ground testing of nuclear weapons. I say above-ground because that says nothing to be below-ground, but at least Eisenhower, you know, as a war man, is going to be responsible for not causing any significant wars. He's just going to green-light a lot of covert operations. But perhaps the, the, the biggest stain on his legacy is the very thing that he warned us against. And I say it again, the military-industrial complex. Eisenhower will warn people of the growing influence of leaders in the defense industry and U.S. foreign policy. But because of allowing people like John and Alan Dulles, right, the Secretary of State as well as the Director of CIA, to, you know, proliferate or apply massive retaliation or brinkmanship, he's going to help legitimize the military-industrial complex, right? And the arms race... It's going to inevitably escalate tension and bring the U.S. into future conflicts. As I said before, we'll talk about that with the Vietnam War. 